ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you go to a main shopping street, not so much in neighbourhood shops, but something a bit bigger, what are you after? Number one was a pharmacy. Number two was a restaurant cafe. Number three was a supermarket. Number four was a coffee shop. And number five was specialty foods. It's more than just a list of shops, and we will get to it later in the show. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. This is The Money. Let's start with competition. For consumers, there isn't enough of it. In 17 industries, we have more market concentration than America does. And in a few, it's very, very obvious. Four big banks, two big supermarkets, two big airlines. Part of the reason for this is mergers and the way that they've been regulated. The government wants to change that and has just put out a consultation paper. The Minister for Competition is Andrew Lee. Minister, thanks for joining us. What is wrong with our merger control regime at the moment? Well, right now, Richard, we've seen a big increase in market concentration and a big increase in markups. Uh, We've had the lousiest decade of productivity growth in the post-war era, and many people think that that might be because our markets aren't dynamic enough. You know, pretty much wherever you turn, from banking to baby food to beer, Australian consumers only have a couple of choices. Uh, And in that environment where large firms are ruling the roost, uh, I think it's important for us to take a careful look at our merger. The ACCC says that it's all skewed towards, I suppose, signing off on mergers. That's, That's part of it, isn't it? Uh, That's their concern, and they've raised this uh, repeatedly with governments. The former government dismissed them. Uh, We're taking these concerns seriously. And so this is an open merger consultation being conducted by a government with an open mind as to the right way of going forward. But in an environment in which it's uh, very clear that the volume of mergers has quintupled since the early 1990s, uh, we've seen a a change in the way in which competition regulators around the world think about mergers. If you look at the United States or the European Union, Union or the UK, they've all had recent reviews of their merger laws. So in some sense, Richard, it would be surprising if Australia Mm. didn't take another careful look at our merger laws and make sure we're getting them right. Right. It sounds like you're open-minded, but you're determined that there must be some change. The consultation paper highlights some types of acquisitions by large firms that aren't currently captured uh, by competition laws. One of these is this sort of creeping or serial acquisition. Can you talk us through what what those are? That's right. And we're not talking about Wheatbix here. We're talking about uh, serial acquisitions of a different kind in which a company uh, puts together an agglomeration of smaller firms uh, and ultimately uh, entrenches significant market power. Uh, This has been alleged to be an issue around some of the big tech firms. Uh, In uh, tech conferences, people now talk about a so-called kill zone around the large tech firms in which uh, competitors uh, are either quashed or acquired and in which it's difficult to take on the large incumbents. Uh, So we believe it's important to have a a careful look uh, to ensure that you don't get uh, suddenly a stage where you wake up and you discover that a firm has gone from having modest market power to completely dominating the market. Another one that's sort of related to that is acquisitions of of what's called nascent competitors, so I guess newbies, by, by large incumbents. 
That's right. Uh, we've uh, seen an environment in which uh, too often y- young startup firms will say that their aspiration is to be acquired rather than to take on the incumbents. Uh, in some cases, that can be good for the startup entrepreneur, but it's not necessarily good for the consumer who really benefits when you get much more choice. Uh, if you look, compare Australian markets to other countries around the world, uh, in a number of sectors, we're very concentrated. Our supermarket sector, our banking sector, for example, are more concentrated than average. Uh, And that means that uh, consumers may not get the best possible deal. Another emerging strand of literature, Richard, suggests that uncompetitive markets might not just hurt consumers, but they might hurt workers too. Uh, Just as consumers pay more uh, when there's only a couple of firms selling the good, uh, workers can earn less when there's only a couple of firms willing to hire their services. Well, your consultation paper highlights some possible changes and I want to I walk through the, the three most important bits to it. The first is notification. So how or when whoever is deciding if a murder is, can go ahead, will go ahead. What are the issues here? If you're a large multinational and you're embarking on a merger, then typically what you'll do is you'll look around the world and you'll ask the question, what are the jurisdictions we have to notify? Uh, Most uh, advanced countries come up on that list, but Australia doesn't. So our competition regulator often just doesn't find out about a big merger that a multinational is putting in place. Uh, It seems strange to me that we would uh, leave ourselves on that list. Uh, So looking at compulsory notification is something that the competition watchdog has been pushing a long time. Uh, And that's why Jim Chalmers and I have uh, asked the competition task force to look into it. There's also that the critical process of assessing the merger. Again, I suppose that some of the issues here are, are going to be who gets to decide. That's right. And uh, right now, there's a fairly complicated process. Uh, we would like to uh, to look at whether that might be simplified, ensuring that things are, are more efficient for firms, uh, but also making sure that we've got the proper scrutiny at the right stage, uh, that the right uh, information is provided, uh, because when merging parties are getting together, issues can be very complicated and can be important to make sure that the watchdog gets the information that it needs in a timely fashion. It's, it's quite technical, some of this. It's sort of whether the ACCC or the federal court's the primary decider, whether the default is to permit the merger or to block it where there's uncertainty, whether things like public benefits, which are kind of hard to assess, should be considered. Uh, That's right, Richard. I mean, I'm not sure the value of going in too much into the weeds of these things, uh, but in the big picture, we're looking at whether mergers should be uh, easier or more difficult than they have been in the past. And we're having putting in place that scrutiny in the context of a competition task force, uh, which is aiming to deal with a cost of living crisis and a productivity slump at the same time. An environment in which we know that competition reform has been really important to driving productivity. So the Hillmore competition reforms of the 1990s delivered about $5,000 a year into the pockets of the typical Australian household. That's what good competition reform can do. All right. Well, I just want to come back to what's being considered. The final part of this is enforcement. Um, What needs to be sorted out here? Uh, well, in this case, we need to uh, to make sure that we get the uh, settings right. And in particular, we're also interested in how you follow through to ensure that uh, merger claims have been uh, sustained. Uh, as with any uh, process, you need to make sure that afterwards you go and check whether or not it's uh, it's it's been uh, the, the promises that were made uh, have been followed through on. Uh, so-called post-merger reviews have been relatively rare in Australia. Uh, and if we're going to improve the system, uh, we need to have a good feedback loop.
Now, you present three options for dealing with all of this, and the ACCC favours one in which there's a mandatory formal clearance regime with compulsory notification of mergers above a threshold and the, and the ability to call in transactions below that where there are competition concerns. Um, there's two others as well. Broadly, do you favour one, Minister? Uh, Richard, I'm conduct we're conducting this consultation because we want to hear people's views. And it would be a mistake of me to say, well, here's my favourite at this stage. We're really engaging in an open consultation uh, and it, uh, it's appropriate for uh, firms and for individuals to come forward with their various views on this. Uh, merger reform has a long history. Uh, you go back to uh, the period in the 1990s where the test was dominance rather than substantial lessening of competition. Uh, and in the view of uh, somebody like Alan Fells, uh, there were mergers that went through under that dominance test that wouldn't have gone through under the tougher test that followed it. Uh, Coles Meyer being the most uh, uh, high profile example of those. Mm. All right, what happens now? The consultation is uh, is open. We're looking forward to hearing people's views. Uh, and at the same time, the Competition Task Force is working on a host of other issues. Uh, they're looking at airline competition. They're looking at uh, so-called non-compete clauses that make it harder for workers to move to a better paying job. Uh, they're looking carefully at uh, ways in which we can engage with states and territories because so much of competition re reform uh, works with states and territories. Uh, but in all of this, we need to get that, uh, that balance right. Right. And so we get a, a more competitive and more dynamic economy. Uh, we're a country that loves our sporting competitions, Richard. And, and in a typical sporting contest, you can choose from at least a dozen firms. Wouldn't it be lovely if in the product market you could choose from a dozen firms in any market you go into? It would be. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this. I think the submissions close in January, so we might see some actual changes by the end of next year. We could well, Richard. Thanks for joining me, Minister. Real pleasure. Thank you. Andrew Lee is the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. Well, now to a different kind of competition, one in which only the biggest can play. Europe, specifically the EU, has been a byword for prosperity since it officially came into being with the Treaty of Maastricht in 1993. But internationally, it's slipping back and finding it harder to compete with the US and China. Here's geopolitical strategist Valina Chakarova. 30 years later, things look very differently on the global scale. The European Union doesn't have uh, the share of uh, the global GDP as it used to have. Um, demographics uh, doesn't look uh, well at all. It's an aging population. The bloc has around 430 million people, but uh, in general, it's a negative trend in terms of demographic developments. And of course, uh, we have many more competitors, uh, with China becoming the second world uh, economic power. So all in all, all of this, of course, now presents a very different picture. And I would argue a quite dire one. Yeah, just to put some numbers on it, EU economy in dollar terms is now two thirds, 65% of the size of the US economy. 10 years ago, it was 91%. Per capita, US GDP is more than twice the size of the EU, and the gap is increasing. Absolutely. And of course, um, these have been structural changes and uh, also systemic processes. So this is not something that happens by coincidence. And if politicians are now blaming the pandemic or uh, largest ongoing conventional war, on the old continent after the 24th of February uh, 2022, I think that this is just a partial answer 
the European Union as a collective player, as a, let's say, collective to economic player, is going to continue facing these structural and systemic changes in negative terms. So we are actually at the beginning of this uh, unfortunately very negative cycle. Well, 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 let's unpack it because we know that there are these long-standing structural issues. Uh, You've already mentioned these demographic pressures. What are these big structural issues that on this side of the world we've tended not to hear much about? Uh, One of the main uh, reasons is uh, also the way how the whole project uh, has been facilitated. And of course, in a peaceful time, in a time where there are no other competitors, this project has been functioning quite well. But of course, the whole project has been built on three main pillars, namely very cheap and affordable uh, energy resources, mostly coming from uh, a single supplier that has been Russia. Second important point, uh, let's say a free and available security umbrella coming from the United States. And the third important point was the cheap manufacturing powerhouse uh, in China. That means, on the one hand, affordable uh, manufacturing goods, but on the other hand, also access to the Chinese markets. And all of these three pillars are now actually uh, evaporating and we see the consequences because um, neither the institutions nor the politicians in Europe have been preparing for this scenario. Valina, how much of the problem is caused by the tension between a particular country, Germany is the obvious example, wanting to do better on the world stage economically and that kind of requirement of a level playing field and free competition within the EU, these things seem to pull in different directions. Oh, absolutely. It's in fact, I've actually coined a term, it's a little bit nasty one, but uh, in a sense, uh, so far quite correct. And I actually argue that Germany has turned into an inverted Jim Cromer index for geoeconomics. So most of the decisions that Germany has taken, the political decisions to navigate through this economic turmoil uh, globally have been detrimental to the development of Germany, but also, of course, with Germany being most important powerhouse uh, within the European Union, it has been detrimental to the development of the European Union. Now think of the quite German approach of Wander Duhander, that means actually creating uh, interdependence with Russia over decades so that Russia does not turn aggressive or does not actually consider launching military uh, attack on any country in Europe. And you know how it ended uh, actually in 2022. And now there is a new approach actually being disseminated towards China, and that is the de-risking approach. It's a European one, but we know for a fact that it's a German proposal because the German companies, the big companies, for instance, the automobile companies, are still very much dependent on the Chinese market. And we see once again that the same thing is happening with this new economic model that is to uh, the risk incentive to decouple from the Chinese economy and from the Chinese trade. And in a sense, what we are going to witness is actually further promoting the interdependence with China, while in fact the overdependence on Chinese minerals, rare earths, uh, is even much higher right. as compared to the one with Russia. So you see already the problem here that means direct political risk in the future once the rivalry between the United States and China intensifies. Then, of course, what we've seen 
during the last two, three years is an unprecedented public spending on behalf exactly of countries such as Germany and France, which should be a role model for the way how things need to be done within the European Union, right? So we saw actually that Germany specifically has practically spent more than 200 billion euro alone to mitigate the negative effects from the energy crisis. This is just one example of many. We know, meanwhile, that a lot of the state aid that the European Union actually allowed over this period has also gone to to, to Germany. So in a sense, this also goes against the whole model of competitiveness and the whole model of the single market. And it creates uh, further ripple effects within the member states because some play uh, by the rules and some apparently in times of crises when it comes to their own economy because they have the means, they have the tools and they have the leverage play by their own rules. Well, do you see that ending? Because there's several reviews at the moment being conducted. They all seem to be being run by former Italian prime ministers, actually. And this tension that we've just been talking about of what a particular country wants to be able to do in the world and what has to happen for for the single market to stay by its three pillars, do you see that there being a resolution of that? Because otherwise, from what you've been telling me and what I've been reading, Europe is going to start to dwindle. I think that the trend, and because I deal with trend projections, not with normative wishful thinking, right? I could tell you that I wish for the European Union would uh, do better in the future, but actually the trend projections are clearly pointing to a rather dire picture for the European Union as an institutional, as a geoeconomic player. And of course, that goes back to the member states as well, in a sense that it's not just a specific area, such as uh, the example I gave you, the energy sector. It's really all encompassing in terms of, if you take a look at the digitalization, big tech companies, quantum computing, space technologies, uh, 6G telecommunications, supply chains, semiconductors, dependence on uh, raw materials. So you see that in all relevant uh, domains and sectors where actually you need some certain excellence in order to navigate the uncertainty right now. These are areas where the European Union lacks the competitiveness and it will witness further efforts on behalf of bureaucrats, on behalf of member states. You know, we will see some reforms, probably deepening of the Uh, integration, Uh, enlargement will happen because in the previous phases, uh, enlargement was a savior, so to say, you know, the European Union expanded the markets and this helped a lot to steer economic growth. All of this will happen, but the European politicians and bureaucrats still don't see the forest for the trees. And the forest is actually a Cold War 2.0 scenario. It's a real systemic rivalry between the United States and China. And here, Europe needs to position itself. And in order to position itself, it needs to be on par and it needs to be, you know, valuable contributor. And right now, I fear that the United States will be looking for Indo-Pacific partners and allies in order to actually compete adequately with China. So in a sense, here once again, I don't see the old continent remaining that kind of geopolitically relevant given the war scenario which will continue. Quite an analysis, and that's Valina Chakarova. 
She runs the geopolitical consultancy FACE in Vienna. Now to shopping and specifically to main shopping streets. So not the corner shop, not the neighbourhood shops, not malls either. More the place you find in thousands of towns and suburbs across the country. What do we want from these places? That's exactly the question that retail researcher Louise Grimmer wanted to answer. We asked our participants to select from a list of 45 different stores and services and we asked them just simply to rank them from number one to 45, with number one obviously being the most important. And Richard, it was so interesting because across the demographics, um, and our sample was completely representative of the Australian population in terms of Uh, sex, age, and whether you lived in the country or the city, the number one store that people want is a pharmacy. Okay. Which Which is sort of surprising. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're in many neighbourhood shops, but also in the main streets as well, yeah. That's right. So I, I suppose we anticipated maybe that the older respondents in our survey might say pharmacy. But even, you know, the 18 to 24 group, which was our youngest group, they want a pharmacy too. And I guess it's because pharmacies have really changed, haven't they, over the last sort of decade, I guess, in terms of many people don't go to the pharmacy at all with a script anymore, do they? They go there to to shop for all of the different kinds of products that pharmacies now sell. Mm. Can we just, I, I, I don't want to do the whole 45, but can we round, yeah, out, ra- of course. round out the top 10? After pharmacies, what do we get? Yeah, so we got, um, so I've got my, my top five here, but I'm sure I can find my top 10 in a moment. My top five were, this was from our overall um, sample. So this is everybody before we start cutting into the data with demographics. Number one was a pharmacy. Number two was a restaurant cafe. Number three was a supermarket. Number four was a coffee shop. And number five was specialty food. So that's things like a butcher, a grocer, a baker, you know, those sorts of of specialty stores. Number six was clothing and footwear, seven post office, eight bank, nine department store and 10 newsagent. Now, the interesting thing about that is the last four that I just said, the post office, the bank, the department store and the newsagent, they're fast disappearing from main streets around the country, aren't they? As you said it, I thought they're the ones that are going. So not all shoppers are equal. Some, as you know, Louise, are kind of all business. Yep. Uh, Get in there and get out. Some are (laughs) about enjoying it. Did you find any differences between the two? Yes, we did. So um, you're quite right. So we call those types of shoppers utilitarian shoppers. So the people who just want to get in and out. Shopping's a task. It's a chore. It's nothing to really be enjoyed. And of course, then on the other end, there are hedonic shoppers and they're people who really enjoy shopping. They don't have to spend a lot of money. They don't have to buy lots of things, but they like maybe either shopping by themselves or with friends or family. Now, in terms of the types of stores and services, there wasn't a great deal of difference between utilitarian and hedonic shoppers. But when we asked our second question, which was, what are some of the elements of a main street which are important to you? Right. So Um, so sort of the environment. So the environment. So we had um, a list of 21 different elements or characteristics of a main street. And we asked respondents to rank each one on a Likert scale. So from one to seven for each of these, with seven being very important to me and one being not so important at all. When it came to hedonic and utilitarian shoppers, there were a great deal of difference. Um, If I just tell you the results for 
the overall sample. Yeah, yeah. The number one thing was interesting. It was cleanliness. The second thing was safety and security. So people want to feel that when they're shopping, you know, because main streets are what we call unplanned retail areas. So they're not owned by a shopping centre manager or they're not a shopping mall. So safety and security is really important. And of course, Richard, parking has, you know, that old chestnut parking. Mm -hmm. That was number three. Walkability was number four and services and amenities um, and then we had the retail mix, a lack of graffiti and vandalism, wayfinding, signage and information, lighting and accessibility. So all of those things can be mostly controlled by the local council except for the retail mix. So I think in general, a lot of uh, local councils really onto this, you know, they work hard in these areas to make local shopping areas as great as they can be. When we got to the hedonic versus utilitarian though, things looked really different. Um, so the utilitarian shoppers want most of the things that I just said to you in that overall list, you know, and their number one thing was wayfinding, signage and information. Right. That makes sense because they're trying to get in and out quickly. Quickly, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. And they, they don't want to spend time looking around. But when we talk to hedonic shoppers, this was really interesting. So their number one thing that they want is events and activities. Um, they want marketing and promotion. So they want the area to be branded as a destination and promoted. They want public art. They want history and culture. So if an area um, you know, is very rich in history or culture, they want that to be um, emphasised. They're very interested in, in aesthetics. That makes sense. Mm. They want things to look great. Uh, nighttime economy, sustainability, seating and tables, lighting, and my favourite, greenery. So that's a very different kind is. of shopper, isn't it? It is. And, and yeah. you're right. It is. It, all of those things, they make sense if you're there for the, for the good times. That's right. If you're there because you enjoy being in these areas and you enjoy the, the act of shopping, and maybe it's also that, you know, obviously social aspect for, um, for people. Now, utilitarian shoppers are usually male, and, it and may older, as, I would imagine, as well. Yes, well, we get utilitarian. We get more utilitarian as we become older. I, I hope that doesn't happen to me because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a hedonic you're, shopper. You're in the hedonic camp. Oh, absolutely, and so I should be. I'm a, a retail scholar, but uh, hedonic shoppers are, are primarily female shoppers. But but our main streets, Richard, we, they have to cater for all of these kinds of people. So what I'm thinking is, though, that these are. Uh, they want different things. So it and as you said, this is for local bodies. This is for local government. But the the take home is, if you want your main shopping areas to really work, you have to really try. You have to put yes. the work in and and invest. Yes, and the reason this is important is because with the rise of of online shopping, which now accounts for almost 20% of all retail spend, it's very important for our local areas that we do provide great places for people to come and socialise. Now, it's not all about shopping. I totally understand that. There are lots of reasons that we go to our main streets or to small city centres. But if we have this information about what's important to people, it means that we can really try and improve um, existing places, but also when we're developing new subdivisions or suburbs, we don't want to have those awful, dreary places that we know <laughs> are around the country. If we've got this sort of knowledge, mm. hopefully we can design better places for people. These can be a third place, can't they? Not not work, yes. not home or not school, not home, somewhere right. else to be. Yes, somewhere that people feel comfortable being. And I think it's really important that we do 
um, have these places where we can meet people, we can have serendipitous conversations with strangers who we might not meet if we're just sitting at home, perhaps shopping on the internet. You know, shopping is a really important part of our local communities where we've got lots of small independently owned stores. I'm always on about shopping local whenever you can, supporting small local retailers because if we don't, and we know this Christmas is going to be challenging for a lot of uh, retailers, then we're going to lose those stores from our local shopping areas and they're not going to be great places because we'll either have empty storefronts or we'll just have, you know, a whole raft of national chains and franchises and And that's not what makes a place vibrant or interesting to be. So, yeah, it's Mm. it's a really important piece of research, I think. And and people have certainly been very interested in it, particularly local councils and developers. Well, I'm not surprised, Louise. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Richard. Louise Grimmers at the University of Tasmania. That's pretty much it for now. Next time on The Money, what to expect in 2024. The show comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. Is produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidy. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.